0: Series one of the Disabled Debrief podcast is sponsored by Diverse Educators. Co-founded by Benny Cara and Hannah Wilson, Diverse Ed began as a grassroots movement that has the mission to celebrate the diversity as well as to amplify the voices of those in education. It has evolved into a training provider for the school system of all things DEI. Find out more at diverseeducators.co.uk. Join the conversation on Twitter at DiverseEd2020. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Disabled Debrief podcast with Conscious Being magazine. I'm your host, Lydia Wilkins, and usually it would just be one other person on this podcast. Today's episode is a roundtable discussion about chronic illness in the workplace and we'll be discussing things such as accessibility, reasonable adjustments and other things that chronically ill individuals face regularly. We have three different guests today and they'll introduce themselves to you. My name is
1: I'm a writer and a blogger and a speaker. I'm based up north in sunny Yorkshire. I have a particular interest in inclusive education and employment, especially for people with energy limiting conditions. I myself have a chronic illness called ME, which stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, which causes all kinds of fun symptoms like chronic pain, unrelenting fatigue, something called post exertional malaise. So as you can imagine, that poses quite a few challenges in day to day life. And um, alongside working as a freelancer, I'm also part of a really lovely small charity called Astrid, which matches talented people with chronic illnesses with inclusive and meaningful work. So really looking forward to having a chat today. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm Sophie Ban. I'm neurodivergent and like Pippa, I live with ME. I've had it for just over two and a half years now. Um, So it's kind of like having a broken battery that won't charge as well as feeling like you've got flu a lot of the time, um, and those feelings are especially worse after any activity. So as you can imagine, that makes working really difficult. Um, before I was sick, I worked in conference production, um, and I tried part-time for a little bit when I got ill before having to stop. And now I do some freelance journalism, content creation, and make artwork. I do this all really sporadically. Um, at a low level, energy permitting, um, and it's all about disability, but with intersections with uh, sustainability as well. My work's been in the likes of AbleZine, Possibility Magazine, Days, Sick Magazine, and Vogue Italia. And I prefer
3: the pronouns they, them, but sometimes use she, her. I'm Punta Van Hayden, and I'm a freelance journalist, um, formerly commissioning editor of Take A Break magazine. And I specialize in true life, stories for the national press in the uk and i'm also founder of Ethical digital magazine uh lacuna voices and um i have quite severe endometriosis which is a inflammatory predominantly gyne disease but it can have a whole body impact which it does with me um some of my symptoms include severe pain um for many people it can manifest in different ways but common symptoms include um, infertility, pain, sciatica, you know leg and back pain, abdominal pain and fatigue Um, and I've had it since I was probably about 14 or 15 though it took a good 11 years to be diagnosed so um, it's mostly the reason that I went freelance after a staff career and I also have a hip problem which hasn't really been resolved despite a couple of surgeries so the combination of the two is quite immobilizing and that's kind of me in a in a nutshell
0: to open this discussion up I'd like to ask you all about your thoughts about so-called traditional employment versus freelance employment, as well as to explore the benefits in relation to chronic illness of going freelance. It's no coincidence that everybody here works in some kind of freelance capacity, I think.
2: I feel like flexible working isn't actually as flexible as it's made out, because often you have to commit to a certain number of hours that you do every day and the times that you're going to be doing these like maybe you work a little bit better in the afternoons um which you know it it, it, it can be helpful and it's definitely a lot better than having to commit to a, a times um that a company's put forward that doesn't work very well with maybe your sleep cycle, maybe you struggle with a lot of um, fatigue and brain fog, especially in the mornings, things like that, or maybe you need to have a nap in the middle of the day, whatever. Um, But also bodies don't really work like that. Some days you'll wake up and you're just not capable that day and it doesn't help to push through at all. But, you know, maybe there aren't many sick days available and, and, and things like that um but you know at another time you might be having a really good day when actually you can work a little bit more than you normally do um so I think it helps a lot more to have maybe if you are working in traditional employment um a set number of hours that you do in a week rather than you know committing to a a certain time frame that you're working every day obviously it depends a little bit on the role it depends on the industry it, it depends how accommodating your employer is um but I think a lot of companies think oh you know we do flexible working and things like that but they're thinking of it more in a way where it's maybe they're a caregiver and they need to look at when their child is being looked after when they need to pick them up from nursery school things like that Um, they're not really thinking about a chronically ill body. I think something I also want to briefly mention is that although there has been more of a shift to working from home Frustratingly, um, after I lost my job, um, there are still, you know, a lot. There is still a lot of pressure from companies trying to get people to come into work. They think it's better for I don't know, visibility, seeing what they're doing, um, connections with employees. I'm not sure. Um, obviously, you know, that's people's um, personal preference. If some people prefer that. But, um, you know, it's not just an issue in terms of um, illness management for chronically ill people. But obviously, there's a risk of coronavirus at the moment. Um, So, you know, that also might be a trigger for some people to go into freelance because then they can work on their own terms from home rather than, um, you know, having a lot of pressure from employees employers to try to pull them back into the workplace even though it's not safe you know there's a risk that they might get long covid on top of their um existing chronic illness symptoms or maybe they have maybe they're immunocompromised you know that there's a lot more risks
3: for chronically ill employees the very reason i went freelance um was because of a lack of flexibility and you know part of my case for asking for part-time or some working from home days, was that I'm in pain and being in an office and commuting four hours a day and working 40 hours a week is actually really detrimental to my health. And I talked about how I'd suffered for a long time and medicated loads and had six operations and I've done everything I can to fit into this ableist 40 hour a week office based scenario and I can't do it anymore. And the options I was given were take a demotional leave, basically. Um, and this was a quite a few, well, about five years ago. And now I think what I was asking for is really possible because of what COVID's done for working from home. But at the time, it just felt completely impossible. And I wasn't ready to leave. I loved my job. I loved the staff. I loved everything about it. I was absolutely in no way ready to go freelance. But... I felt that I have to kind of choose between my health and what felt like daily torture. You know, that's how much pain I was in. And I would spend all my time working and then come home and just recover quote unquote, because I never did. I just come home and go to bed and I'd spend every weekend in bed and it was never enough to get me ready for Monday in that commute and work. So my quality of life was, you know, really impacted by all the pain I was in and having to fit into this model of work that, wasn't compatible with my pain and my chronic illness so I found it really hard Um, but it's not to say that you know all companies have the same ethic or ethos about work even then I I went on to work somewhere else that had um, I worked four days a week from home and I managed a a team of writers like 10 writers on multiple national titles and it was fine so it's doable and it's completely possible but I think it's a lot about The mindset of the employer and how willing they are to let go of kind of archaic parameters they've set for their staff and their office and that (coughs) sort of thing definitely
0: in terms of disclosure i know that i have talked to you previously about this but i just wanted to ask you again in terms of disclosing your chronic illnesses to employers i was curious to know whether for example whether the attitude changed within the workplace towards yourself once that had happened
3: um i i was in a weird position because i had to have a lot of surgeries before i got to the point that i actually you know went and talked to hr and said i am actually i need some reasonable adjustments here so i think everybody kind of knew that I was particularly unwell and in pain all the time, and um, so there was there wasn't like a, a a point at which it went from them not knowing anything to them knowing everything. It just kind of slowly seeped in. But I think it's it's hard to know what they were thinking, how they behaved. But obviously, my my absence when I have a, I've had a surgery, and you know the doctor said I should be back on my feet within two weeks, but my recovery took three months you know that impacts (laughs) impacts you doesn't it as an employee and perhaps how willing your employer might be to consider you for promotions and things like that you know there was never any official line either way and I, i did get promotions during the time that i was very ill but you know it's more of a feeling isn't it about how you're how you think you're being perceived
2: it's an interesting question about disclosing disabilities i mean in an ideal world you would be able to disclose your disabilities, receive the support you need, and not experience, you know, any stigma or judgment for that. That would be the ideal case scenario. But that's obviously not the world that we currently live in, unfortunately, although some employers are more knowledgeable and supportive than others. Um, I found with other disabilities I have, like autism and mental health problems, they were things that I think were particularly stigmatized, and also that I could... (sighs) with a lot of effort um and other problems mask in the workplace so I never disclosed those but whereas when it came to ME it was so obvious that I'd gotten sick and never gotten better and I really couldn't sort of pretend that I had energy because you know that would leave me in bed for days um so I really really needed I needed change to, to how I was working in terms of reducing things drastically but yeah there, there was a lot of misunderstanding from my employer they hadn't heard of it they didn't know what it was like they had no idea they didn't really understand the chronic nature and that I wasn't making this sort of choice and relaxing um, as someone that should be working really hard at trying to that should be working really hard at my career Um, but you know I presented with with some booklets and information and and that helped a little bit Um, but also another issue when you disclose and obviously a lot of people know that that's why you've reduced your hours Um, I decided to share it with people just to explain things but obviously you don't have to do that Um, but you are going to get some stigma you know and especially the sort of um, toxic positivity and when people think they're being friendly but it's still ableist like saying things like oh, I don't know how you do it, you're so inspiring, I couldn't live like that at all, you know, the implication sort of being, oh, I'd rather die if I was in your shoes, which stuck with me, it's definitely um, not the most positive thing to say, Um, but yeah, obviously a lot of other colleagues were really supportive and I've stayed in contact with them, Um, so it's a mixed bag really, you just don't know who you're exposing yourself to, but obviously, it's that toss-up between potential ableism and getting the support that you need. And in that case, I went for the support. Um, But now, um, I mean, I don't work very much at all, but when I do, I try to make it so that my disabilities are like a positive asset. For example, when it's um, writing about disability or creating art about that, so it's a benefit rather than um, something that is potentially stigmatized in that situation
1: yeah there's um there's so much that could be said but i really agree that there's so much variability between different employers and different employment practices so even though we all know that it's kind of standard legal practice that an employer has to implement reasonable adjustments how that translates in reality really can vary um on how the individual perceives them, we know that some are much more proactive than others, and that means that individual experiences of people with chronic illnesses can vary a lot as well. And drawing on my own experience, um, after I graduated, I moved into traditional employment, and I do consider myself very, very lucky because I worked for a big disability charity who really had the reasonable adjustments down, they were very accommodating, I never felt like I had to conceal my condition Um, really. But at the same time, even though I was working part-time in an understanding team, there's still that point about your work-life balance and how you're managing that as somebody with a really debilitating illness. Um, So sometimes it just goes to show that when you're dealing with something like that, even with all of the adjustments in place, traditional employment might not be accessible for everybody. Um, And I think a lot of the time people in that situation end up beating themselves up about it. And there's definitely a much wider conversation that needs to be had, again, like was mentioned earlier, about work-life balance. And to draw, actually, I've got some stats on this. (laughs) I came prepared. Um, The small charity I work for, Astrid, we did a research report and 66% of people with chronic illnesses who we surveyed reported that their work-life balance was poor. And it just goes to show that so often the expectation is that we pour all of our usable energy into employment and productivity Mm. and suffer the repercussions of that. And that's something that's sadly become normalized, perhaps even outside of the chronic illness community as well. Um, So while I think that there have been vast improvements made over the past few years, it's clear that there's definitely still a long way we have to go. Yeah, um, yeah, I really relate, Pippa. Um, When
2: I was working part-time, when I shifted down to part-time, still in traditional employment, my work-life balance was really, really bad. I was the lowest weight I've I've ever been, despite having an eating disorder when I was younger. Um, I was sacrificing seeing friends, um, hanging out with my partner. Um, I would spend all the day in pajamas, um, all so that I could Um, be able to work these four hours a day which was the minimum amount that uh, my workplace could offer me to keep my job Um, even though I knew I needed to be starting a lot lower um, with that um, but I was just desperately trying to hold on to things because I knew that if um, I lost this job it'd be really hard to find another one again where I already sort of knew the workplace and I knew what, what was going on so I think kind of um, a lot of people who are maybe already in roles when they become chronically ill you can kind of push yourself to still hold on to that role even if um, it's really not suited to your disability and isn't adapted um, enough to your needs.
1: just gonna say um, it was interesting and this is something I've been reflecting on recently. I had very similar issues like I said with Um, work life balance in traditional employment and that was one of my main motivations for becoming self-employed and at first it did really make a positive difference in terms of having that balance and looking after my health and well-being more the way that I needed to but something that started to happen and I'm sure that you'll all be able to relate to this as well with freelance life Mm -hmm. is that as more and more opportunities start coming your way it's very easy to chuck that balance out of the window again so even when there's not that external pressure that's making you do more than you feel is realistic and more than you can pace yourself with you still end up taking on more and more um until it gets to a point where you suddenly find yourself at this crisis level again um so it's it's definitely something it's not something that magically goes away um, if you move from employment to self-employment and I think Mm -hmm. in a way it's kind of a lot of it comes from internalized ableism and the way I suppose we've all been conditioned to believe that being productive is the most important thing and there's I mean, there's so much more we could unpick there as well, but it's definitely a challenge. And the more I've been talking about it, the more it seems to be a really common thing in the chronic illness community, constantly feeling as though we have to prove ourselves and not always feeling like we can take those steps to look after our own well-being. Um, So yeah, there's definitely stuff that I think a lot of people can relate to with that as well.
2: Totally. And I think when you're doing content creation, or you're writing, or you're creating something that responds to something in the news, it's all very, very timely as well. So you you kind of think, oh, you know, I need to jump on things now, or the window will have gone to potentially get an opportunity in that, like if you were pitching a piece or, or something like that. Mm
3: -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And Pippa, what you were saying there about kind of internalised pressure, internalised ableism, you're so right, because I, even though I've been ill for so long, even though my mobility has been impacted for so long, even though I've had to go through some, you know, the official kind of dehumanizing processes for PIP and all that sort of thing, I don't think it actually registered in my brain that I am disabled. And I was holding myself up to a very able-bodied norm in terms of working. And it's taken me five years of freelancing to start being a bit kinder to myself and say, if I need to take a day off to rest, if I need to stay in bed today, Like, you know, for instance, today, I couldn't get out of bed until half an hour before this call from pain. If I'm in a flare, like that's okay. I don't have to work the same way that my able bodied freelance friends do. And I think social media perhaps has an impact there where you see everybody on this constant roll of Mm. commissions and pitching and writing and slogging. And I have to remind myself sometimes that, yes, my mind and my creative ability is able to do all that but Mm. my body is not and it's both comforting to recognise that and also soul crushing. I don't know if that's the same for you guys, but it is for me Um, because I feel Mm. like my potential is capped sometimes by my body's inability to keep up with what my brain wants to do and it's it's a source of frustration and anxiety for me, but it takes a lot of work internally, doesn't it, to be able to
1: Mm.
3: recognise and somehow adapt around that
1: it's um it's really I it's a tricky one because I I wouldn't wish it on anybody and yet at the same time it's always such a relief to know that you're not alone and other people oh. are going through it too like I've just heard yeah. everything you've just said there and thought oh my gosh it's not just me <laughs> yeah yeah definitely
3: same with what Sophia, what you were saying about how you had to put all of your energy into work and it was making you you know forcing you into a position where you couldn't even kind of eat you know you don't have the energy and the time for it it's just really sad to hear that that, that was your situation but I can totally relate.
2: Thank you <laughs> yeah I think I think it definitely helps hearing from other people that we're all going through similar things but also it's kind of um, it's so frustrating that it's such a structural issue issue that so many of us are going through similar things Mm.
3: definitely I think there's a there's an issue that's created by employers by not allowing or advertising or desiring part-time workers more Mm -hmm. I think if they allowed part-time workers then you know I could for instance just from my own personal viewpoint I could I think I'm capable of having a part-time staff job I can tell them how many hours I can work and I can I can mm-hmm. make that happen, but they don't allow it, really. They just want full-time workers who work mm-hmm. on site. And it's just, it's so inflexible even now. I think yeah. we've moved past the office-based issue with the pandemic forcing employers to make people work from home and realising that, you know, nothing's going to fall apart. People can do it. But getting them to see that part-time workers also bring something to the to their workforce, you know, I think that's a real slog. I don't know when we're gonna get there.
1: Totally.
2: I had um I had a friend who's also got Emmy um email a job recently to ask if they were would be willing to split this full-time role into part-time. Mm-hmm. And the response was just the classic. Oh, it's not something that we're looking to do as a company at this time it would require more resources and all of this like it's kind of seen as like if you hire someone with a chronic illness they're seen as a burden requiring more work they're less reliable they're going to be less productive for you basically is what it is what it comes down to um but there should be there should be a lot more job sharing even with my role back when i I was in traditional employment i asked if i could job share with someone else because we were both trying to do part-time but we, she, she was a, a caregiver. She's got a a young kid. Um, so obviously, you know, it benefits people like that as well. Um, but I asked if we could job share. She was really into the idea as well. Again, my employer said, oh, it's not something that the company's looking to do at this time. I don't think it's best for both of your careers. You know, oh. you're a young professional and all of this. And I was kind of like, you know, I, I I'm not going to be able to work like this. This is my only other option. I think it's kind of like, There's a very all or nothing approach with with work. I
3: couldn't agree more, and I've actually worked in environments where I've worked seamlessly as a as you know switching on and off with another commissioning editor, especially without notice. You know, if somebody was ill, we would cover each other. We just slip in and out of that role with absolutely no disruption to Mm. the editorial team's workflow. No issues. No you know crossed wires. Like people are good at their jobs. Creatives are you know great at multitasking like what and many industries as well i don't understand what the issue is with job sharing other than employers being obtuse about it i don't i don't i don't understand what the reason is for denying that and one thing i'm doing with lacuna voices is if i'm ever lucky enough to have the funding to to you know employ staff all of my staff are going to be working completely flexible hours mm. offered the opportunity to work part time everyone will work remotely Because I've seen it work. There's no reason why you can't have a fully flexible workforce.
1: And the thing is, when you do have that fully flexible workforce and you have the adjustments that people need, like the job sharing, the more flexible hours, reduced hours, the thing that a lot of employers are yet to realise is that when somebody is working in a capacity that best suits them, they're going to be able to bring their best self to work and give their very best self to their work. So Mm. if somebody's well-being is where it needs to be, they're going to do much better in their role than somebody who is completely burned out on the edge. Um, And I know that, what's the right way to word this? I know that it's it's a lot easier said than done. And I do appreciate that a a lot of employers might still have a bit of fear around it. So it's clear that there's a lot of work that needs to be done because so often the 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 burden of these things falls on the chronically ill person themselves, like they're the one who has to negotiate these reasonable adjustments and perhaps Mm. fight for them if they aren't implemented as routinely as they should be. And again, to throw another stat at you, (laughs) um, we found that 89% of the people we surveyed with chronic illnesses felt that their employer and line manager needed to be better informed specifically about chronic illness, and especially Mm. the challenges that might differ from disability more generally. Um, and it just seems like there's, and this this isn't new. So many people have been saying it for so many years, but I really think we're still waiting to see that shift that really is gonna take these token you know, statements about diversity and inclusion and make them actually apply to all the talented people that are currently missing out and the workforces that could really benefit from those people as well.
0: I would like to ask you all about the concept of productivity, Um, a question to put to all of you. This is, I promise this is relevant. Recently, I read this statistic, um, a little bit spurious. Um, This was on Twitter um, from someone who said they were a psychologist, and it suggested, in terms of a study, once autistic people who are in the workplace have their access needs met. Productivity in terms of the employee increases by 200%, and that is very often more than their neurotypical, i.e. not on the spectrum, counterpart. Now, in terms of chronic illness, I would argue that things such as that are relevant across the board because that makes the case for if you provide reasonable adjustments and accessibility productivity in terms of the business would go through the roof and in terms of accommodating people who have
1: a chronic illness surely therefore that this must be a thing that should be done I just always feel as though I need to prove myself I need to be out there and again it's that whole hustle culture that's becoming so toxic um so that's I don't know if anybody else can relate yeah. to that I'm sure mm. something a lot of people can struggle with and it's just another it's funny because we, it sounds like we've all had experiences in employment and in self-employment and something that people ask me a lot is which one is better if you're chronically ill? And I just don't think there's a simple answer because there are definitely pros and cons to each and there's so much variability, not just with the occupations, but with what your personal career goals are and what your ambitions are. So I think ultimately it's a case of weighing up what's going to be best for you, figuring out how much wiggle room there is for each of them. uh, I could talk about it all day it's there's so much to dive into but it's such an individual thing and I really think the power is in realizing that it's an individual thing it's not just a one size fits all approach employment it's so dependent on so many things all the more so when you're dealing with a problematic chronic illness Mm, and it's also
2: that thing of like work makes you sicker you know especially with like CFS um ME And so sometimes it is worth taking
3: that step back and then sort of building it up from the ground up. Like Pippa was saying, I I don't think I've really given myself any annual leave since I've gone freelance. It's just been, I've taken a few days off here to go somewhere with my husband or whatever. But one thing I have implemented is trying as hard as I can not to work weekends. Mm -hmm. That's that's really the only time that I, I allow myself to not because I do have a daughter at home who is home all weekend, and it kind of forces me into not working, but I do sometimes slip into the middle of the night, pain, insomnia, might as well do some work over the weekend. So it is kind of hard to switch off on that front. And I think for me personally, this has been um, kind of made, made more acute, newspapers I work for just keep sliding down. So in order for me to make my minimum amount that I need to make every month as a freelancer, I now have to actually do many more features because the rates are sliding down. Yeah, I feel like um, freelance writing
2: work just really isn't paid well for the amount of hours that you put in. And you know, especially if it's a topic that's like a really difficult topic that you need to think about lots or comes from personal experience and there's sort of like an emotional component there. It's not just like, oh, these are some nice shoes that I liked. But you know it's really difficult. Like I feel like you know, I mean I can't I can't write more than one article a month, and you know often I don't even do that. But you know you're you know you're hardly getting any money from these things. You know um, it's
3: really tough because if you're in the freelance writing business in terms of journalism, um, things are moving more towards a digital model, and digital doesn't pay. Print still pays that's if I didn't have print in my repertoire I I wouldn't be able to survive as a like I wouldn't be able to pay my bills Mm. to be honest but even on the print side it's it's really sliding down and they're doing more stuff in-house rather than farming out to freelance like they have done for years so it's Mm. really difficult really difficult I find myself on the quieter weeks and months just thinking maybe I need to just give this up altogether. And I need to look somewhere else do something else but mm. I've been I've been a journalist for 13 years like what else is there for me to do it's really odd mm.
2: yeah and then if it's in-house then that's someone probably with a full-time job you know who's like mm. more capable of doing these things it's honestly yeah. why sometimes I'm just kind of I do some content creation I mean I think kind of like you know I put a lot more I, I use it as an outlet you know for like difficult things that I'm dealing with and in some ways it's kind of like a journal you know it's not just like work even though it's often
1: just unpaid work but just the talk about pay the thing because I know there'll probably be people listening to this who are interested in going freelance themselves and the one thing I wish I'd done sooner with regard to money is talk to other freelancers and have that conversation if of course they're willing to share because nobody is obliged to share what they're earning but I realized earlier this year that for the past three years, I've been radically undercharging for most of my freelance work, especially my work as a blogger. Mm. And that was an absolute facepalm moment. And I know I'm not very good at talking about these things, um, but if you can, it can be worth checking in with other people who are working in similar areas, especially people who are more established and saying really politely. And of course, like nobody's obliged to share, but if you don't mind, Could you let me know how much, how you got to your figure kind of thing, even like a day rate, a general ballpark figure. And again, I think another issue that particularly affects the chronic illness community is that we undercharge and we don't, we don't always see the value of our own contributions, which can affect the way that we work out pricing for things. And that's definitely something I've had to do a lot of work on over the last six months or so. So if anybody's listening to this and they are looking to go into it, Um, don't be afraid to have those conversations and to really think about what you're offering and the worth of that not just the hours you're putting in but the value of what you're actually sharing and creating as well because it's so easy to discount that and really that is the main thing so please don't undervalue yourself easier said than done but yeah
3: yeah definitely agree with that and I think my tip for kind of like new new writers or someone who's new to freelancing is the first time that you um, are commissioned or given a project or contract or whatever with a new client or editor, magazine, whatever, always, always, whatever they offer you, ask for more. Because once they set that bar of that first payment for that first commission, it's really hard to go back the next time and say, actually, this time I'd like a bit more. If you establish that line of payment you know what you're what they're what they have to pay you basically to do the job and it's higher the first time that's much better all round rather than trying to go up higher the next time it's good advice but it's
2: it's scary isn't it I feel like it's the type of thing where you know when there aren't that many opportunities coming your way you just kind of want to jump on any yeah. bit you can for any experience but like it's it's really good advice but it's um
1: I I feel like there's a lot of
2: like internal things to like wrestle with there.
3: I've done it with every single editor that I've worked with and so far it's never backfired. You can always just say that's great like thank you for the offer. Um, I had a figure, another figure slightly higher in mind. Um, This is what it is and often they'll either meet you in the middle or give you that figure. Mm.
1: I think... In a nutshell, I think what we can all agree, and the thing I wish I'd had somebody to tell me back when I was starting out as a freelancer, is to know your worth. You don't necessarily have have to be doing what everybody else is doing. There's no right path. There's no real right or wrong when it comes to being a freelancer. At the end of the day, you are the expert in your own lived experience. That's the most useful piece of advice anybody has ever given me. So, while being completely appreciative of all the barriers, both in employment and self-employment, really hang on to the things that make you unique, and really just please don't forget how valuable you are, because there's so much you can offer to the world. Um, so, never lose sight of that. That's that's really good to hear. Oh, I felt like I needed that today. <laughs>
3: Thank you. Um, probably the one bit of advice I would give is that if you do go freelance. Um, it's quite easy to still try and impose a nine to five on yourself I know that obviously isn't possible with all conditions and illnesses and disabilities etc and it's definitely not for me but there is this tendency to feel like in order to be um, successful or be achieving what you perceive you should be achieving you need to still fit that nine to five but the beauty of going freelance is that you are master of your hours so you know if you want to work a couple of hours in the day and then go off and have a life or rest or whatever, do some house cleaning, whatever it is you want to do, and then come back to it in the evening and do a couple of hours then, that is okay. You don't have to fit anybody else's model. As long as your work is done when it needs to be done by, then, you know, use the autonomy you are inherently given as a freelancer to make it work for you. That's one of the perks. So definitely, you know, don't don't overlook it.
2: Uh, That was all really good advice. So I would say... um just in terms of where you're at with the working thing. I would say if you're still in the traditional workplace, it's really worth looking to see if there are any booklets that you can give your employers about your condition. Maybe that will be on a website, a charity for your condition. I know Action for ME have got some really good booklets for employers that I've used. And that will kind of help hearing it from someone else rather than just hearing it from you. I feel like often employers are kind of um thinking they're very concerned about not giving people special treatment but i think it helps having it in a more official information booklet if you're thinking about stopping traditional work or you've recently stopped i'd say you're still valuable even if you don't work and it's important about disconnecting your productivity from your worth and if you're thinking about um doing freelance work or going into that um just trying to pace yourself as much as possible and it might help though you know they're not often as exciting names but to start with some of those more disability focused um companies um to work with like for example a disability magazine if you're thinking about going into writing and things like that as those might be a little bit more accommodating maybe allow longer deadlines and be helpful to sort of ease you into um freelance that's what i found what i would say if you're thinking about going into content creation i'm at the really really early stages of this um but you're obviously going to get free things before you get any money to do things, um, especially, you know, if you've got a smaller number of of followers, um, and things like that, um, but I think there's still value to be had in that, you know, especially as a disabled or chronically ill person, um, who's not earning very much money, um, on benefits, or whatever you know it's really helpful to have um a free tracksuit here some free shampoo there some free tea you know it's not kind of the thing that paints the bills but it can you know um add a little bit of something in terms of things that you don't have to then spend money on um like you know if you need a new jumper or something like that um and really how I got started was just emailing companies that I liked um you know you'd be surprised the the number of companies you know especially small companies that was kind of who I focus on like small sustainable brands um who are willing to 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 give something to you um to then share with your audience um so yeah it doesn't pay the bills but I think it's worth looking into but obviously you know Um, it's important to still pace yourself, it can become a lot of work if maybe you email a lot of brands in one go and then you hear back from a surprising number that they're willing to give you something and then you have to post all this content and I don't really think a lot of the brands realise like how much effort it is to get yourself ready and and, and make yourself look um, presentable on Instagram I feel like you don't necessarily need to do that if it's just you posing in um, some clothes that you aren't sort of um, advertising in a way but when there comes with this advertising component I feel like you need to look more presentable so just think about that that it does come with energy costs and it's important to pace yourself and not overcommit yourself to um, too many brands and get excited by potential free things